My name for publishing is William Preston. Nobody calls me William, but that's my that's my publishing name. For me, reading is a way to expand our empathy. I'm not original in saying that. Bill Preston, literary science fictionist. The first episode with Bill Preston started at episode 144. Go to the show archive to catch up. If you want to find Bill's work online, search for author William Preston and you will find his books. So how does, and I'm going to use this frame science fiction author for a while, whether you deny it or not. And uh, because I'm curious, how does it, how does being a a science fiction author or an author like you change how you teach? Being a writer, uh, I think affects how you teach because to be a writer, you have to be thinking about the reader. And so I feel like when I was a kid in school, typically when you were given a book to read, I just don't know that it was appreciated what our reading experience was, you know, the ways in which, and you probably had it too. And many, many people I talked to did, you know, there are ways in which English classrooms just suck the joy out of a, out of a book, you know, and okay, I'm an English teacher. I don't want to do that. I don't want to suck the joy out of a book. Why not Bill? That's the way you're supposed (laughs) to do. That's the job. I've totally screwed up. (laughs) We're trying to get it. We're trying to get them into engineering after they go to college. We don't want them to make any mistakes. Now I understand. (laughs) You know, I want, I want kids to see how cool it is, what the writer did, you know? So I want them to read the story and like, enjoy it as readers. And I always say, I hope you enjoy this story. You know, I want you to, I want you to enjoy it and appreciate it. But I also want you to appreciate like stuff the writer's doing that you might not really immediately recognize. I, I want you to get into like, how did the writer think of this? I, I teach, um, I'll teach kids for doing poetry, you know, Robert Frost's The Road Not Taken. And, you know, you want to get them to look at that and see what, what he did that like the kind of stunts he pulls off in that, the way he fools you, the way he's lying to you, the way he's misdirecting you, the way he's using language in like really sneaky ways. And it's great to use a, you know, a, 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 however short that poem is, 16, 20 lines, to look at a poem like that. And you can just, there are so few words. And like, let's look at what these words are doing. And then when you take that and look at something longer, you can say, look, writers are still being like really careful at the line level. Let's think about this. And let's apply that to our own writing. Like, how careful are we being? You know, do you need that word? Why is that there? Why are you saying that? So I worked in journalism, too, for a while. And so that emphasis on what can I cut out? What does the reader really need? What does the reader not recognize that she or he needs? Uh, why is the writer telling me this? And to, and to treat the text as something you should really interact with. And so I think as a writer, I, I appreciate that maybe more 
from both a tactical standpoint and again, an, a kind of empathetic standpoint. And so getting kids to apply both those elements to the things they read as well as then their own work, which I always tell them, like, read aloud, read your own work aloud, you'll hear errors. But also when you're reading stuff, when you're, when you're reading a short story, don't eyeball it. You know, it's not, it's, it's not a, a, a news piece. It's something where there's a voice and uh, you should be hearing the writer's voice. Uh, the idea of silent reading is a modern concept. There's a scene in um, Augustine's Confessions where he's sitting on one side of a garden wall. There's somebody on the other side of the garden wall and he hears the person walking around reading, I think, reading the Gospels or something. And it's not remarked on as odd. People read aloud. Uh, I say to my students, you know, when you're in math class and you get a problem that's like really confusing, what do you do? You say it aloud. You're like, wait, a, wait a minute, a train is going at 20. Why do you do that? Because that's how we comprehend. Language is meant to be heard, not just have our eyes skim over it. So slow down. Listen to yourself as a writer. So I'm conscious of that as what's, what's, what's the voice uh, that you should be hearing. And I read aloud to the students a lot, too, so they can hear what, what's the book sound like. Uh, about training your mind about new concepts through speaking aloud, that's applying your multiple intelligence, uh, your visual learning, your auditory, uh, yeah. maybe some other things as well. So, so that makes complete sense. Yeah, you've got to take it in at an auditory level, yeah, to, to, to really grasp it. You're investing more of yourself into the, whatever it is you're trying to right. understand and right. experience it. Yeah. talk about Asmos for a bit because you publish a lot in Asmos is what it sounds like um, yes when you publish into Asimov are you consciously trying to target that market or are you just writing what you want to write no not at all which is why I've had plenty of things rejected you know from Asimov the, the editor there Sheila Williams uh, you know knows me she's the person who first bought fiction from me and is always very encouraging but I have no expectation I mean, maybe a story just doesn't work. But she's also, you know, said to me, this doesn't seem like an Asimov story. This doesn't seem like, okay, she has a better sense of that than I do. And I don't necessarily think that. In fact, I, there was a story, it actually might have been my first old man's turn, trying to remember, where I did not initially send it to Asimov's because I thought, I don't know that this is what they want. And it got rejected wherever I sent it to. And, and then I did some more revision on it. And then I sent it to her. I think that's the story it was. And, and she said, like, no, no, this absolutely is something. Uh, okay. So her sense of who her readership is, I mean, that's, that's her job. Yeah. And my task is not that. So I've had things that, you know, I don't know where this goes. I don't know what to do with this. I mean, that story that won the Zoetrope Prize, I, that story was bouncing around in one form or another for 10 years. I had written it and had tried to sell it many places, never Asimov's, never science fiction magazine, and got rejected repeatedly. It didn't have exactly the same ending, but I, and I never got any helpful feedback on it. It was just like, nope, 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 nope. As you, as you know, you know, when you send things in, typically what you get is nope. Yeah. So I didn't know what to do. So I happened to know uh, George Saunders, the marvelous American writer, short story writer, the guy Lincoln and the Bardo, uh, who won what was the National Book Award for 10th of December a couple years ago. I taught his daughters at my school, 
And he's a neighbor. He was a neighbor at the time. And actually, I ended up kind of presuming on his generosity. He's a very just wonderfully decent, generous human being. And saying, George, could you look at this story for me? I don't know. I, I feel like it's really interesting and cool, and it's so different. What, what can I do to it? Like, it makes it's going to make it work. And he read it for me, and his response was, I have no idea. He said, I'd really like it. But he said, when I, something like, whenever I write something that I'm not quite sure about, I think, like, what's the, what's the next place it needs to go? And I was like, I don't know what to do with that. So I put the story aside for months, and then something occurred to me at one point, and I'm like, oh, oh, right, here's the kind of next logical place for that story to go that I hadn't really thought about. Oh, and so I made these additional changes and, and revisions and took it a little farther in one direction. And then that's what won the Zoetrope Prize. So it was nothing specific that he said, obviously. But that, that piece of advice is just like, where, where, where should this, where might this go? Which is really challenging as a writer. And, and it's, it's helpful for me. And I've learned certainly as a writer to not not assume I know where something is going. I think you have to write thinking you know where it's going, right? And kind of fool yourself into having some sense of confidence about like just the very sentences you're putting down that day, as well as your ultimate destination. But that once it's done, you know, and I've certainly grown accustomed to this by now, going back going, okay, well, that's the wrong point of view. And that's the, you know, and that's the wrong, I don't know, tense. And that's the, (laughs) that's the wrong ending. And oh, and that changes everything about the beginning. Mm-hmm. So things get radically revised for me. And uh, that's that's always the way I've done it. But that story really taught me, I think, a lot about like just beating the crap out of your writing <laughs> and and not having any kind of not feeling like you had ownership in what the final destination was until you really were done with the thing. So not, not really presuming right. anything about the story or nice. about what kind of story it was even. Yeah. Nice. Nice. Yeah. No, I, I, I could apply that thinking to a couple of my deadbeat stories still hanging out here that I <laughs> can't quite get it right. And, Fix uh, me. Yeah. Fix yeah. Me. yeah. <laughs> that was George Soros. Is that who you said? No, George, no, not George Soros. Sorry. That's oh. the that's the guy. That's the guy who Republicans accuse me. Oh, that's the, yeah, never that's the anti-Semitic that right wing trope. Yeah, <laughs> jo- yeah. No, George Saunders, S A U N D E R S. George Saunders, the um, who teaches at Syracuse University. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Tell him thanks for me. I, I'm going to apply that thinking to some of my stories. I will here. do so. However you found Sci-Fi Thoughts, be it iTunes, Stitcher, or any of the other podcast aggregation services, if you've enjoyed the show, go ahead and do us a favor. Go to wherever you get this podcast and leave us a review, even clicking a few stars. And this will help out the show in many ways. Go visit the show notes and you'll find goodies like Bill Preston's website on Amazon and his Twitter link. So check it out. Where are the show notes? The show notes are in your podcast player or 
if you use your computer, it'll be at the same website where you downloaded this MP3. Next episode, more Bill Preston. I'm going to read from the first of the old man stories that uh, Asimov's published, helping them take the old man down. The the old man stories are, they, they springboard from Doc Savage and other just superhero stuff. But Doc Savage was certainly initially who I had in mind, even though it's not, that's not who the character is. It's much more an idea about, well, what if that kind of, and this is not an original idea, and many people have played with this, you know, what if superheroes were real, essentially? And I wrote this thinking, you know, what if superheroes are real, and, you know, why then do terrible things still happen? Which is also a theological question. It's the, it's the, the question of theodicy. Uh, why does God allow evil? From my own time with the old man, I sensed some people simply aged out of service. Others died, of course, and not only because the old man's career had spanned decades. For most of those inactive months, I believed he kept me in mind, yet didn't need my specific talents. Perhaps what he termed the work had progressed, though the world seemed just as fraught with troubles, even as the Cold War staggered to its undramatic close. Stories still surface about him, not front-page matter as had been the case mid-century. His exploits faded behind the conjoined twins of popular news, terrorism, and celebrity. I ducked into a used bookstore to get out of a pounding late afternoon rain that kept whipping under my frail umbrella. Not wanting to appear merely mercenary in my use of the shop, and certainly open to the possibility of a purchase, I strode with feigned assuredness to the rear of the store. There, the smell of rain seemed to have gathered, so that the farther I went in, the closer I seemed to get to the source of the storm. I passed between rows of shelves that reached nearly to the ceiling, then turned toward a back corner. There he stood, the old man, raindrops marking his steel-gray trench coat, his bulk and stillness mastering the tight space. He held a small book open in one hand. Hello, Lanny, he said without looking up possibly without moving his mouth. That famed ability to throw his voice that he practiced even when he wasn't about the business of confounding some villain. The rest of the reading will be in the next episode. <laughs>